Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist analysis podcast from the Socialist Party. Some of the biggest recent demonstrations in Britain, the US and elsewhere around the world have been against Donald Trump's presidency. In this episode, we look at the nature of Trumpism and what it means for workers and young people, but also for the capitalist class. Bear in mind that this episode was recorded in July, so it doesn't cover some of the most recent developments. And also, please accept our apologies for the background noise as the recording was done outside while at an international meeting. Over to Sarah Rack. Okay, I'm here today with Brian Cloris, who is the national organiser of Socialist Alternative. Um, Socialist Alternative is the co-thinker organisation of the Socialist Party in the US. And I'm going to be talking to Brian today about Trump, which is a big issue that many people in Britain and around the world are thinking about. So hi, Brian. Hey, Sarah. How are you doing? Good. So firstly, we like to start by asking everyone why this issue matters, why it's worth having this discussion. So for people in Britain, but also internationally, why is it important to understand the nature of what's happening with Trump? Right. I think Trump is a part of a process that we saw at the G7, formerly G8 meeting, um, where the imperialist powers all around the world have no solution to the capitalist crisis. Uh, and in fact, there's going to be a renewed economic crisis at some point. And they're trying to carve out markets for themselves, moving more and more into conflict with each other on a world scale. And Trump himself accelerates this process um, with not only his rhetoric, but his proposals for trade wars. And also you see this politically, you see this phenomenon of right-wing populism around the world and socialists need to learn how to mobilize to fight against right-wing populism and for working class unity and working class interests. In addition to that, I'd say that Trump has acted as a whip of counter-revolution in the US. Immediately after taking office, Socialist Alternative was actually at the forefront of calling mass demonstrations across the country. And you saw many people who had been passively involved in politics, passively thinking about socialist ideas, maybe just going to one Bernie Sanders rally in the previous year that then felt the need to get organized. Um, and so I think it's important for us from the point of view of the world economy, world relations, relations between nations, politically, uh, lessons for how to fight right-wing populism, and also a factor in the growing movements around the world. Great. So, I mean, you use the term there at the end, right-wing populism. Um, and is that kind of how you would classify the Trump presidency? What do you think are the main features that we're seeing under Trump? And, and also, do you think that he has any particular kind of ideology to speak of? Right. Um, I would guess that Trump himself has very little consistent ideology. The main consistent thing about Trump is his inconsistency. Uh, he used to be a Democrat. He used to be uh, pro-choice, and now he's the biggest threat to women's rights in the country in decades. Um, he used to have all sorts of positions that are the opposite of what he's putting forward now. That in no way means he should be underestimated as a threat. One thing that has been really consistent about Trump, not only throughout his political career, but his career in business, is that he is a wretched authoritarian. He is someone that wants to control everything and destroy people's lives in the wake of it. 
So yes, we consider him a right-wing populist, and the policies he's putting forward, whether he believes in them or not, are having real consequences on uh, uh, the lives of ordinary people, whether it's separating immigrant families at the border, whether it's this appointment of a Supreme Court justice which threatens to overturn the hard-fought, hard-won abortion rights in the U.S., um, or whether it's these protectionist trade wars that could have devastating consequences for the world economy and the working class. There have been huge changes in the Trump administration in terms of defi defining the ideology of it. For instance, you had um, a white nationalist, a borderline fascist, who was setting the tone in the Trump administration in the first two weeks, uh, Steve Bannon. And what you saw with Bannon was completely... Uh, trying to dismantle the the ruling class power structure in the U.S. by using executive orders to implement policy after policy after policy. Many of them vicious right-wing policies, but also Bannon had a plan to try and imp implement populist policies as well, infrastructure, etc. But he never got that far because what happened was people reacted quite dramatically to what Bannon was doing uh, by shutting down airports across the country in defiance of the travel ban. And this caused chaos for the ruling class. They pushed Trump to back away from Bannon. Um, but now every faction that was early on in the Trump administration, and this has gone in, into in the book uh, Fire and Fury, uh, which has a lot of weaknesses, but is quite entertaining. Every faction that was important in the early days of the Trump administration, which was the mainstream Republicans, um, the Bannon faction, and Trump's family have all been isolated in the administration. And uh, what's happened is that Trump has become more and more uh, in an authoritarian way in control by getting rid of these three warring factions. He's brought in some uh, generals in order to give him uh, some prestige among the military community and also to have a section of uh, the ruling class more willing to see that he's got that he's got reliable people around him rather than just ideologues like Steve Bannon. But actually the changes in the Trump administration make him less and less predictable. It makes it more and more uh, uh, beholden to his personal whims and uh, more and more creates the basis for big tumultuous events in the US that uh, can be scary but can also lead to mass movements and a clarifying of ideas. Okay, so you talked there a bit about, you know, the threat that um, Trump poses. And there's obviously, there's quite a big fear um, in the US, but also elsewhere about uh, yeah, some of his really reactionary policies. But obviously, he did win the election, and he still has support in the US. So who is it that forms his support base? Um, and how secure is that secure base? And, you know, how can that be undermined? Right. Well, it's important to point out that the U.S. electoral system uh, is rigged in a way to benefit the Republican Party. Um, and this has been done, this is built into the Constitution, unintended consequences of the fact that rural areas are given much more voting power in the U.S. than urban areas. Uh, there was a reason for that back then, but now it benefits the Republicans who have also use their power over the years to chip away at voting laws in many areas and to change and restructure the districts. So as everyone knows, Trump lost the popular vote, but there's actually more to it than that. 
uh, voter turnout was down dramatically from uh, the uh, Obama-Romney election to the Trump-Clinton election. And what this is, is part of an international phenomenon of just a lack of faith in the institutions of the ruling class. A lack of faith in their political parties, a lack of faith in their state, a lack of faith in their media. Um, and so Trump is not an ordinary politician. And this is why he was able to get the base he did. It is overwhelmingly outside of the big cities. It's rare to see a Trump supporter, a MAGA hat, uh, make America great again. We call it MAGA in the US. You don't see that in the big cities, right? But you see it out in the suburbs, out in the rural areas. A Trump supporter is more likely to be well off, uh, more likely to be wealthy than a Democratic Party supporter or someone who doesn't vote at all, right? Um, but at the same time, there's a small part of the Trump base that's very working class and even some of the poorest sections of the working class. They also voted for Bernie Sanders. If, if the people that voted for Bernie Sanders and Trump, it's a small proportion of Trump's votes. It's a few million people. But if those people don't vote for Trump, he doesn't win the election. You can see with the West Virginia teachers strike, with teachers strikes, in areas where right-wing populist ideas are quite uh, powerful and dominant, not just the strikes themselves, but the mass sympathy that they got, that with a class program, this element of Trump's base can be won over. Um, and Bernie Sanders' campaign already showed that. Trump's base itself, while representing a small section of the population, is more stable than the traditional Republican Party base, because he's seen as someone um, that fights for something, that aims to deliver things. Uh, but the crucial factor that can undermine all of that sort of subjective confidence in a strong man like Trump, who people feel can maybe bring some stability, the key thing that can keep him afloat is that the world economy's contradictions have not reached the point of tipping over into recession. We don't know when that's going to happen. But when it does, more and more of these middle-class layers who support Trump will be disappointed, and more and more of these working-class people who can already be won over against Trumpism will not just be disappointed, but will move into action, move into struggle, as we've already seen with the West Virginia teachers' strike. Okay, so that's kind of on the working classes and the middle classes. Um, what about then about the ruling classes, the, the capitalist class? Uh, in the US, because I think that um, in some of Socialist Alternatives and the CWI's written material, we've talked about um, Trump as not being under the control of the capitalist class um, and of, of that being a frustration for the capitalist class, him not being an ideal representative for them, but also that he is a representative uh, of capitalism. He's obviously, he, he's a capitalist himself, super yeah. rich and so on. So do you maybe want to speak to that kind of... Um, Perhaps apparent contradiction a bit. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, in some ways, Trump is the naked rule of capitalism. Usually, they don't uh, they don't form parties called the Bankers Party or the Stockholders Party or this. They construct their parties um, and put middle class people usually to the forefront of them. Professionals, professional politicians, PR people who can sell things. Trump is just the naked rule of them but also he has the confidence from that uh, he is not a career politician in a way that makes him unreliable and his own personality as well he feels like and it's true 
that he's gotten to the position of pre the presidency by doing something different, by attacking the politicians, by not carrying out business as usual. So he's an unpredictable figure. The idea that a U.S. president would be saluting generals in North Korea is absolutely unthinkable for the U.S. ruling class, right? Um, they do not want trade wars. They do not want tariffs. Um, but Trump is also, with his brash determination, with a Republican majority in Congress, with the extreme weakness of the Democratic Party, which is the only reason there was an opening for him to get into power, um, he's able to accomplish things for them that they uh, uh, haven't been able to, to do before. A level of deregulation a level of tax cuts. The ruling class has been trying to get those Trump tax cuts for decades, and they finally get it with his strong-armed authoritarian approach. So they very much don't uh, like to have someone who can't be controlled, who can't just be a PR man for their system, the way Obama was so effectively. Uh, but at the same time, they aim to use him to bludgeon the working class, and that's what they've done with the harshest anti-union laws that we've seen in many, many decades uh, with the Janus decision. And so they'll aim to use him in a way, while at the same time as they're frustrated with him. The most far-sighted strategists of the U.S. ruling class are in the security state. Um, they write perspectives documents, the FBI, the CIA, they write perspectives documents about where things are going, what should be the strategy, etc. They are extremely worried about Trump, and you can see that in the way they're going after him. Um, yet at the same time, the main engines of the capitalist class, the most powerful people, are concerned about short-term profits. And Trump is okay for short-term profits right now, although they don't like the destabilization that he represents. Uh, most of the capitalists will likely get behind the Democratic Party in the midterm elections. But at the same time, uh, the capitalist class is not willing to oppose him at the level of trying to drive him out of office, impeach him, which I'm sure there are charges that could be taken up against him on a whole number of issues. Because they hate the fact that he's brought this authoritarian approach, that he doesn't listen to them as much as they'd like, that he's carrying out uh, all these divisions against the EU, for instance, against Canada, which is just absolutely mad. There's no reason for it. Uh, but they don't want to undermine the institution of the presidency even further. They don't want people to think that you can just drive an elected capitalist official out of office through a movement. Um, so they're not ready to take that step at this stage just yet. Okay. Um, so you've talked quite a bit about... Um the instability represented by Trump and I think something that we hear quite a lot in Britain um, is a kind of fear that the Trump presidency is going to lead to a an actual war situation um, on any number of possible fronts really. Uh, how realistic do you think is the prospect for uh, an actual war to take place? Well the generals that Trump have, have brought around him are the hawkish generals, are the ones who are seen as more willing to take military actions than other sections of the uh, military leadership in the U.S. Yet at the same time, there's a consensus in the military leadership that a ground war carried out by U.S. troops is not possible. This is based on real dramatic history that is built into the consciousness of people throughout the U.S. 
The last time that U.S. troops were sent to fight a ground war was Vietnam. It was a losing war, and it caused a huge social upheaval in the U.S. The Vietnam War is part of the back backdrop to the black power movement, to the women's liberation movement, to thousands of people joining so-called revolutionary organizations in the 1970s. Um, and fundamentally, uh, what stopped that war was the, the fight for a social revolution in Vietnam, the fight for land reform, etc. There were also other features as well. There were big demonstrations in the U.S. which gave confidence to soldiers to refuse to fight, particularly black soldiers, to the point that towards the end of the war, the majority of soldiers were not following any orders. They came back uh, and to social devastation, uh, and many of them came back to activity, either in the anti-war movement or the black power movement. There is an understanding that there will not be a draft in the U.S. because it will be completely unacceptable. But then you have another attempt at a ground war. The way the neoconservatives tried to deal with the relative decline of U.S. imperialism, of course, U.S. is still the most powerful economic and military country in the world, but there's no longer a prospect, for instance, of the U.S. controlling government after government in South America or being able to set the tone uh, and sort of uh, be able to control the policies of the other major imperialist powers. And there was a feeling that that was possible, say, in the 1990s, etc. So, there is no basis for a ground war with mass U.S. troops. And if a section of uh, the military hawks changed that position and went crazy and Trump somehow... Uh, push forward trying to carry out uh, military cons conscription in the U.S. The revolt of the levels we've seen with Occupy, Black Lives Matter, uh, with the Bernie Sanders campaign, they, those would pale in comparison to the immediate revolt that would take place in every single major city throughout the country if there was a draft. There is no prospect of a ground war. So then what about a full-scale air war? Well, Obama was certainly willing to bomb country after country after country, but bombings don't lead to regime change in a reliable way. Bombings lead to further destabilization in a region, and that's true in country after country after country. Even when they've been able to remove uh, a ruler like Gaddafi in Libya, um, there's been uh, a lack of the type of stability that's needed for corporate investment. And that's the crucial thing for U.S. strategy is the growth of the rule of the U.S. capitalist class. So there is a huge amount of unpredictability with the Trump regime. You absolutely cannot rule out a wide-scale bombing campaign that would not be in the interests of capitalism that would lead to a conflagration of wider war. The economic perspectives point to the fact that more and more countries are going to be competing with each other. Sometimes a bombing campaign can have unintended consequences, and particularly with the situation in the Middle East, you never know. Um, because of the way the Israeli ruling class has been acting towards Syria, um, uh, because of the way the Saudi Arabian ruling class acts, because of the desire of the Iranian ruling class to develop their influence in the region, there could be a conflagration that's kicked off by the U.S. But while that can't be ruled out, there's not a serious perspective of a ground war 
that tens of thousands of U.S. troops will participate in because it won't be accepted in the U.S. And uh, although the complete annihilation and devastation of nuclear war um, has been a thir certain threat in society, that's not what the capitalists want. It completely destroys, I mean, they don't, they're not humanitarians, you know, but it destroys the basis for them to develop their markets, for them to have stability, for them to make more money. And so I think we should not be complacent anytime there's the threat of a bombing campaign because of how unstable capitalism is. We should have an all-out mobilization of young people, of working class people, student walkouts, strikes, mass demonstrations to uh, try and stop wars where the threat rears its ugly head. But we should also not lose a sense of proportion about the fact that the U.S. working class will not accept a long-term ground war and about the fact that the capitalist class for all their murderous crimes against humanity will aim to protect the interests of profit. Okay, so I think that's pretty much it, but maybe if you wanna, I mean, you've mentioned a few of the movements that have happened in the US in recent years, and obviously Socialist Alternative has played a really important role. Um, the role of Sharma Sawant as a counselor in Seattle has been really important, but what, um, what are the, the key tasks for socialists in this moment under the Trump presidency? Well, now you have uh, many, many young people interested in socialist ideas and even getting organized around them. You have polls in the U.S. that uh, a majority of young people support socialism. And this is quite interesting because we have, unlike in Britain, we have no history of any parties that claim they want widespread public ownership or nationalization. Um, we have no uh, recent history of a mass socialist movement or even of a workers party. So this means that socialism is a fresh new idea to people, but it also means that it's starting at a very low level. For instance, Bernie Sanders campaign. On the one hand, it talked about a revolution against the billionaire class, very radical language. On the other hand, he would constantly use Sweden as an example of what type of society he'd like to see. And we see the neoliberal attacks in Sweden right now. They show that what the capitalists give with one hand in one period, they will take away with the other hand in another period. So right now, um, there is already a sort of popularization of basic socialist ideas and the democratic socialists of America have grown, but they don't have a clear Marxist program. And we think uh, a clear program that can bring forward the interests of the working class, that can bring together all these movements to fight alongside each other and with each other, that can give a political expression outside of the rule of the billionaire class where working people, young people, oppressed people can get organized together, that this is what's necessary. But also crucially to all those movements is a Marxist backbone, is having an organization that can show by example, as we've done in Seattle, as we've done in Minneapolis, what's possible if you get organized, if you fight back, if you have class struggle methods. And alongside that, ideologically, learning the lessons from the more advanced situations that the CWI works in, where there's been bigger movements, where there's been bigger tests of new left formations, like Syriza in Greece, um, like Podemos in Spain, like Pasol in Brazil. These can give us lessons as well, 
that we can intervene in this ideological debate among young people to convince more and more people uh, as they'll be learning through all these struggles that Marxists have the best concrete program to take forward each struggle but also we have a broader perspective alongside that that can prevent the betrayals of reformism and can take things forward to their logical conclusion which is the power of the working class and the liberation of humanity. Okay, that's an optimistic note to end on. Thanks very much, Brian. Okay, thank you. As always, you can find some recommended reading to look into the topic further in the episode notes at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. And let us know if you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes by emailing socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. And don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe in your podcast app.